At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Why are you doing this? You did this to yourself. And admitting that is the first step. You're a crackhead. Thing is, this planet and these people, they're your drug of choice. It wasn't that hard to make a universe. At first you just checked in every once in a while. See how the Neanderthals are doing. Move a couple of continents around. But then you got more into it. You started playing a couple of characters of your own. Slaves, kings, messiahs. Pretty soon you were playing 24-7. How long have I been? You've been gone for 4,000 years. Not that time means the same for us. You came looking for me? That's what a girl does. Why now? Because you forgot who you were. They forgot this wasn't real. We couldn't just storm in on a fiery chariot. It was your universe. We had to play by your rules. We had to show you how limited and corrupt your little world was. Don't get me wrong, it's... It's a nice place. It's cozy. But do you remember where you came from? It was warm and white. You can't describe it with human words. You can't think it with human thoughts. We need you to come back. With us. Come back with me. An appropriate time to whip out that clip from the movie The Nines. When the Sophia character and her aeons remind the Logos character, played by Ryan Reynolds, that he forgot he was a supreme being and fell completely into a meat sack identity. You're a crackhead, Sophia tells him, because he became hopelessly addicted to a deficient world he himself created. In a past interview, Guess Amun Rig explained that in the Gnostic myths, Sophia herself might be addicted to the world she created. And that's why she allows her tragic bastard son to continue his douchebaggery. She can't let go. Part of her is hooked to the narcotic of conflict, that razor's edge rush of destruction. As Tom Waits said, There ain't no devil, only God when he's drunk. You mean you let all those people die? Just to test your creation? You really are a clever boy. Why do we have to have evil? Ah, I think it's something to do with free will. And the theme of this episode is addiction. As well as recovery from addiction. Did Sophia ever recover? Well, we're still here, so we ought to find ways to help her and the Logos with their dependency. As above, so below. So in the end, we're all addicted to this Terra Damnata. 
is the new model for the new concentration camp, where the camp has been built by the inmates themselves, and the inmates are the guards, and they have this pride in this thing they've built. They've built their own prison, and so they exist in a state of schizophrenia, where they are both guards and prisoners, and as a result, they no longer have, having been lobotomized, the capacity to leave the prison they've made, or to even see it as a prison. You might think this topic is a departure here at AM Bytenostic Radio. What if I told you that our astral guests leverage Gnosticism, as well as other esoteric traditions, to climb out of the wormholes of alcoholism and into the interstellar overdrive of recovery? That is Duke Talbot who materializes at the virtual Alexandria to discuss his touching autobiography, Appalachian Free Spirit. From the unspeakable horrors of the Vietnam War to living a lie as an academic and family man, Duke shares his inspirational story of breaking free from the balrogs of alcoholism and kindling his divine spark to become a shining crazy diamond. And yes, the Gospel of Thomas is part of his recovery. The first words in Jesus' Gospel are the kingdom of God is inside you. Maybe the balrogs of alcoholism are more than just literal. I'm sure many of you in recovery would agree, as being under the lash of alcoholism feels like we're being possessed by undiluted evil, by the principle of destruction or that dark archetype I've spoken about that Tyler Durden that Jung contended was real when he shared correspondence with Bill W., the founder of AA. Like Aldous Huxley said, in the course of history, many more people have died for their drink and their dope than have died for their religion or their country. And in the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus says that when he came to earth, he found most of humanity intoxicated. This whole society is a machine's concept of perfection, peace, harmony, but no soul. Well, it's not really a measure of mental health to be well-adjusted in a society that's very sick. To fully understand the dark archetype, and as a bonus, I'll include, after Duke's interview, the show we did last year with David Schoen entitled Jung Addiction and Archetypal Evil from his penetrating book The War of the Gods in Addiction Trust the gods, Leonidas I prefer you trusted your reason As many of you know, I am a recovering addict Half of my life has been that of a junkie or drunkard lost in despair and oblivion an existence of alienation and inflicting untold pain upon others. Like Bertrand Russell said, drunkenness is temporary suicide. I'm a drunk and I don't do my job and that's it. I'm a drunk and I don't do my job and I get fired and I can't get a job now and I 
But it's not a wasted life, even if I lost so much time and potential. Because, like Duke, I can share the gnosis with others of how we push back against the dark archetype and alchemically healed our psyches to transform into new beings. Today I have a daily reprieve, and that's just fine. Life breaks free, it expands to new territories, and it crashes through barriers painfully, maybe even dangerously, but life finds a way. If you listen to this and realize that you've been compromised by black forces that warp your soul and manipulate your mind to the point you can relate to the principle of destruction, always know that there is a solution. There is a way out. Don't succumb to those black forces that want what destruction wants. Your complete annihilation in this and all your other lives. There is a solution. There is a way out. I promise you this and hang on until the miracle happens, which will be having the honor of finally meeting your authentic self. I know who I am. I'm a dude playing a dude disguised as another dude. But you must ask for help because there are forces from above always there to comfort and liberate you. In the Gnostic Gospels, Sophia languishes in sorrow and desolation, overseeing the chaos she created with her tragic bastard son, Yaldibaldi, the great symbol of the disconnected ego. She eventually supplicates the Pleroma, and help arrives. She experiences the metanoia or turning about, gradually turning her tear-stained face up and towards the choir of aeons. She is filled with restorative liquid light energy and is once again the queen of heaven. Me, fifth element, supreme being, me, protect for those of you wondering why a chick always needs to be saved, you are misunderstanding and misunderstanding the point. In the Gnostic tripart tractate, it is the Logos who falls into the chaos and has to be bitch rescued. While in the trimorphic Pretanoia, it is the Sophia figure who saves Jesus from the cross. Don't misunderstand and misunderstand the archetypal energies within cosmic stories and your own inner saga. Or just create some of your own narrative of redemption. Write your own gospel, live your own myth. Is this all real? Or is it just happening inside my head? Of course it's happening inside your head, Harry. Why should that mean... But it's not real. The point is that to remember our wholeness, our divinity like the Ryan Reynolds character in The Nines, we must ask and get that help that was always there. We must turn about in our metanoia, go through a purging journey up the spheres like Sophia. I'm still on that journey. No guarantees, except the reality that I can receive help if I just ask. 
That's the divine part in me. If we have souls, they are made of the love we share. Undimmed by time, unbound by death. Also remember that fear is the great destroyer, second to ignorance in the Gnostic tradition. And Krom knows I have been ignorant of my addiction most of my life. Just didn't want to face it. In the end, anger is just fear that has fully succumbed to the world of forms and the game of the principle of destruction. Train yourself to let go of everything you fear to lose. As the second treatise of the great Seth says, and the senseless and blind ones are always senseless, always being slaves of law and earthly fear. The Gospel of Philip further says that if you fear the flesh, it will have mastery over you. And as Robert Anton Wilson wrote, the fear of death is the beginning of slavery. In the end, there is no death, so why fear it? First, you have to give up. First, you have to know, not fear. Know that someday you're going to die. And what is fear? It is simply not wanting to let go. We don't want to let go of a person, a situation, a condition. Material and emotional things that were never for us to control, but our demiurge side told us otherwise. We were unable to let go because we diluted ourselves into thinking, like Yaldabaoth, that we were a god and there were no other gods but us until we listen like the Ryan Reynolds character in the Nines to Sophia in her aspect of the Queen of Heaven. Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of. Ask for help. Realize that fear is just holding on to silly hallucinations. Turn around and face the light. And, like me, you just might be okay. If you need help, I am here for you. You are never alone, no matter what the dark archetype wants you to believe. Every passing minute is another chance to turn it all around. I have this idea for a while to start a podcast called Finding Hermes, where I discuss with guests about addiction and recovery and mental health issues from an esoteric point of view. Why Hermes? He's the god of the mind and tricks. And in between, we can find how to finally make both work for us in our lives. What do you think? I would need some funding and support. Just throwing it out there. Or maybe like Sophia, just asking for help as I still learn to be divine. But enough of my drivel led us to a poignant interview with Duke Talbot. And again, write your own gospel, live your own myth, preferably sober. The divine does not reach out to us from a cosmic beyond. 
It breathes from within. Our souls are secret entities which nest inside our skin. If the body shells the soul, and the soul is divine ground, then God is earth, God is us, God is all around. Byte interview, and with us we have the pleasure of being joined by Duke Talbot to discuss his book, Appalachian Free Spirit, A Recovery Journey. How are you doing, Duke, and thanks for coming on the show. I'm doing great, thanks. How about yourself? Doing great. Early in 2020, it's cold, but spirits are high. And I think your message will be very useful to our audience. And with us, we also are being joined by the Moondog Vance. How are you doing, Vance? I'm pretty good this morning, Miguel. Looking forward to a great interview. Wonderful, and thanks. Well, Duke, uh, as I mentioned to you, I enjoyed your book, I like to do shows on recovery and addiction from a more esoteric angle, even though they're all, all the solutions, the spiritual solutions are esoteric. And, but this is, I feel very important. Of course, as I've uh, shared with the audience, I myself am a recovering alcoholic and addict. I am in the program and I have utilized very spiritual methods to, for recovery, to get connected to my higher power. So when I, I saw about your book, there's a lot of parallels with your life and my life, just like there's a lot of parallels with every alcoholic and addict who tries to find the solutions in the spirit. So this is how we connect it. And the audience now knows this. So we'd like to uh, cover your book on your journey of addiction and recovery. So we should probably start out a little bit about your past. Uh, what was your childhood like, Duke? I'd say it was pretty, pretty middle class, lower middle income people. But it was, uh, I mean, I had a good home, good parents and uh, we didn't have too much money, but we, uh, we were always in church on Sunday morning. And it was actually a church that, with a loving, caring, and forgiving God. And, uh, that would stay with me for a long time, even though by and large I would kind of just push God aside while in active addiction. But, uh, I grew up, I, uh, there were five of us, had three brothers and a sister. But, uh, you know, I didn't get any trouble much when I was a kid, a little bit here and there, but nothing very serious. And, uh, our parents had expectations of us, uh, everything from being at dinner at dinner, being to dinner at dinner time, and also, performing satisfactorily in school and showing up in church. It was actually kind of a fun childhood, <laughs> in a way. 
That is the mystery. I think you also write in your book, Appalachian Free Spirit, that yes, you write that you did uh, encounter a loving God. Uh, obviously, many people who got into alcoholism and addiction, one of the reasons they lose any sort of ability or desire to search for spiritual life is they are encountered with sort of the judgmental a stern God of the Old Testament, but you write yours was a good God in church. But I think you write that you had a problem even as a child because uh, it was explained to you that not everyone got saved and there was this thing called the concept of original sin. Yeah. Well, to be honest, you know, I had a spiritual God, I think, at that time. And what was added to it by religion uh, was, uh, uh, included some of the things that I really had trouble dealing with and accepting. And I, that concept of original sin, for example, I just, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't see any reason for that. I hadn't done anything. I was a kid. I tried to be good. <laughs> and, uh, so I, 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 got rid of that concept of original sin along the way of life a long time ago, even while I was still in active addiction. And uh, yeah, it's always hard to sort of understand what went wrong as we look back at our lives. I mean, you're talking you had a good childhood. You also mentioned, I believe, that there was really no signs of addiction or addiction itself in your family, right? I think you said your dad smoked and that was about it. Yeah, in my immediate family, but looking at the extended family with cousins and so on, it, it, that story changes some. I just think of this, my immediate family, there were no other addicts except, except me. But with first cousins and a, yeah, a few other family, extended family members, that wasn't the case. There were a lot of them. So it was around. And what would you say was your first encounters with alcohol? When did you start drinking, and how was that? Well, I got a job when I was 15, which in growing up in 1950s Appalachia, there weren't very many jobs around, even for, even for you know, teenagers and so on. But I happened to luck into a job. And uh, I was on the job oh, the first couple of weeks. And after work, we were cleaning up. Somebody whipped out a bottle. And that was the first time I'd ever been really been around booze because my parents didn't drink. And uh, so I, t I took one. Of me, they offered me some. And, of course, I wanted you know, to be the big shot at 15. and said, oh, yeah. I'll have some. I took a big swig of some kind of bourbon or something. But uh, I, I hated it going down, but when it hit bottom, <laughs> I knew something changed, you know. Uh, and I didn't I didn't really, I kept on drinking as, as much as they'd let me drink that evening. And uh, I, I, that was the night shift I was working on, so we didn't, Finish up to about one o'clock in the morning. And I was, it was probably my first drunk too, because I, I, I drank as much as I could. Um, 
But I got home, and everybody's in bed, of course, and so I went in the house, went to bed, nobody, no consequences. And that characteristic, that, in fact, both those characteristics, drinking, wanting to drink a bunch and also never getting in trouble would characterize a lot of my addiction career. Uh, I, you know, a lot of people say they get, you know, worked into, uh, drugs or alcohol. But with me, it was right from the beginning. And I'd not say that I was going to start drinking every day or anything right from the beginning. I didn't. You know, but whenever I got a chance, I would. Yes, and I think, as you said, you had that feeling. Alcoholics, we always talk about there's that wonderful feeling. We like the effects of alcohol, and one thing leads to another. But you also write that the other part of it beyond drinking was you started building a wall around yourself. That's when you start uh, not wanting to deal with your problems or reach out to people and so forth. Uh, did this start in your teenage years when you started building a wall around yourself or was that later on? Well, probably did start early on, but it certainly was not to the degree that it would happen, especially after Vietnam. Uh, I think that, you know, drinking and drug, and I really didn't drug until later on, but drinking initially, um, it, I was building a wall without realizing it. It just didn't have all the, the bad parts I could put behind that wall that it would later on have. But it was a, it was a gradual thing. I just, you know, um, never really could talk about my emotions, or at least not when I was younger. Right, right, or even ask for help. I think that's the, one of the things I forgot right. to do. It took me years. It's just when I'm down or I need something or I'm struggling, ask for help, but my pride wouldn't let me. I felt it wasn't what men did, right? Right, yeah, big time. And that wall just keeps growing, very much like uh, Pink Floyd, the wall, if you want to talk about an analogy of uh, isolating yourself in your own head, as they say, and staying in your head. And um, how was your experience in college? Did your drinking get worse, or how, how was college for you? Well, it was, I mean, it, in a way, it was kind of a playtime. Uh, you know, gentlemen see in schoolwork, which was, I mean, a lot of people did that back then. I certainly wasn't alone in that respect, but weekends was party time. And, you know, basically every weekend we get trashed. Um, unless they're maybe not during finals week or something, but yeah, we do enough to get by and get that. Yeah, to pass and so on, and I joined a fraternity, and that you know certainly uh, became an enabling part of my uh, partying and having fun. Yeah, for some that's the dream of college, and I know I experienced it. And uh, when did you decide to join the Peace Corps, which was a, a big part of your life? Was that after your undergraduate, or when was this, Duke? Well, actually, I think I was a sophomore 
when President Kennedy announced the creation of the Peace Corps, and I can remember reading about it in the newspaper, and I, I thought then, I said, oh, man, that's something I've got to do. Uh, I just, I mean, just the idea just intrigued me. And so throughout my college career, I kind of had planned on that if I could get it to work out. Uh, mainly because, just because of the excitement of it. One thing that characterized my youth is that I've, I've always wanted to run around. Uh, and looking back now, I think I was trying to find some place to go where I wasn't. You know? Well said. And, uh, so, you know, what better way than running away to, you know, some, country in Africa or Latin America or wherever. I didn't really care. Although when I put in my application for the Peace Corps, they did say, you know, ask us what area of the world we wanted to go to. And I put down Africa. For some reason, I had a fascination with Africa. I was, uh, I'm not sure where that came from, but I did. Yeah, you ended up in Somalia. How was your experience in Somalia? It wasn't just all fun and games. I think you had some uh, tight situations here and there, right? Yeah, I sure did. Um, my, although most of it was pretty congenial, Somalia was not in the mess at that time that it is today. Um, I mean, it was on the margin, uh, but uh, it still had a certain rudimentary stability to it that made it possible for the Peace Corps to operate. And uh, it was uh, it was challenging at times. I know there were a couple of times when, uh, um, you know, there were some life-threatening experiences. But by and large, most of the time was pretty much congenial and sense of accomplishment and doing something and a lot of boredom to go with it because <laughs> you know <laughs> especially well i mean even in just about anywhere in the country the, the it's about as minimal existence as there is to get by on that makes sense yeah and what were you doing there basically teaching and so forth in somalia well, the, the first year I was teaching English as a foreign language. In the second year, the uh, Peace Corps administration had been talking with the Somali education people about a school building program uh, where they go into rural villages and they a lot of them had one-room schools and they wanted to expand them to two-room schools. And so that's for volunteers to work on that. And I volunteered because I thought it would be a great way of seeing the rural countryside. Well, it sure was. But at, uh, what we did, we would go in and meet with the village elders and the district commissioner. And... It was a cooperative project, and the local community, the local village, had to come up with uh, sand and stone 
and water, which, you know, in the desert, water's a big deal, and also the labor, and then the United States Agency for International Development would supply any kind of imported materials such as cement and uh, windows and things of that nature. And so uh, what we did was to sat down with the villagers and the district commissioners and worked out, sorted out an arrangement where they would come up with their share. And once they did, we'd come up with our share and then we stayed on site as we built the schools, the additions to the schools, really. Um, and that was a really interesting experience. I mean, because I got up to parts of rural Somalia, people rarely, if ever, see. I know we built a, a couple schools on the Ethiopian border, and, and when I mean on the Ethiopian border, they were like within a hundred or two hundred feet of the Ethiopian frontier. Wonderful! I, what an yeah, there was Somali. Yeah, it really was. Yeah, I bet. And were you still drinking uh, while you were there, or was it available? It wasn't really. A, I mean, if you get in some of the bigger towns, like in Berber or Hargeisa or Mogadishu, yeah, booze was available. But by and large, I'd, certainly not out in those where we're building those rural schools. It wasn't available. They did have cot available, though. They had what? Cot. Oh, they had pets, uh, like a hashish, basically, right? Well, a relative. It's, uh, you chew it. It's a green leaf that you chew, and it gives you kind of a buzz like marijuana or so. And, but it's it's fairly common in that part of Africa. And it's just so widely have acceptable. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but but alcohol really wasn't acceptable because you know, everybody's Muslim, and it's against Muslim or Sharia law to drink, and uh, so you only had booze where you had a handful of foreigners, by and large. It's not to say that some Somalis didn't drink; they did, but the average person would not. And did you partake in the marijuana? I think you said it's only till you were in Vietnam that you started doing marijuana. Right. No, I, I did partake in oh, okay. the Yeah. <laughs> Basically, when we were teaching in Berber, because there were a lot of young guys there who were teaching in that school, and uh, they uh, would have cop parties and invite us to them, so I went, you know. Uh I mean, I had a good time. It, it really <laughs> didn't do too much for me as far as getting the buzz going, though, to be honest. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I wasn't doing it right or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you were, but uh, each one of us has the that trigger drug or that pre choice, uh, that preference, uh, even though we'll take what we can while we're waiting for our favorite drug to show up. And after that, maybe tell the audience what happened after that. You came back to the United States from the Peace Corps, and then what happened? Finished college? Well, I... I had already graduated with my bachelor's degree, and I decided to go to graduate school. Uh, 
And I did for a semester, but I ran out of money. I, it really wasn't too well planned uh, experience on my part. But I ran out of money, and uh, so I dropped out. And that sure made me eligible for the draft. You know, which the draft was still that was before they had to use the the drawing system to do it. Uh, I mean, the draft draft board people just kind of grazed around the community to find any young men that they could and got them. But I didn't I didn't get drafted, but I I was I'd actually taken a temporary job working for the Census Bureau. And uh, uh, I, I was in a restaurant over in another county. <laughs> the draft board lady from Elkins, which is my hometown, where I was eligible for the draft, just happened to come in that restaurant for lunch at the same time I did. And she saw me, and she pointed a finger at me and shook it, and she said, I'm going to get you. <laughs> and, oh, dear. you know, if the draft board lady was going to get you, you can just well go ahead and try to work out the best deal you could. Could so I went to the armory recruiter, and we worked out a arrangement. I would uh, volunteer and get to go to uh, uh, transportation OCS. You know, to be in the transportation corps which I figured was a good way for me to be able to run around. Uh, and so I ended up joining the military, got sent for basic and AIT, and and then to Fort Benning, Georgia, for OCS. Well, in the process, the uh, Army decided it wasn't going to honor any of those contracts anymore that they had made with, you know, the recruiters had made. So there wasn't going to be any going to, to you know, transportation school. Uh, everybody was going to go as a grunt to Vietnam. And to do that, once you finished OCS, you had to sign, you basically had to commit to two more years. And I said, oh, that's insane. I'm not going to add two more years to this just so I can be an officer. So I'm, I'm not usually a quitter. I just, I'm, it's not my style, but that's one thing I did do was quit OCS. Uh, a lot, a lot of us did. It wasn't just me, but a lot of guys who got kind of got shafted that way did the same thing. And so I just, I ended up going. Just a regular grunt uh, to Vietnam. What year was this, Duke? That was '68. Oh, right in the middle of it. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, maybe you can share your audience some of your experiences in Vietnam. I know one theme in the section that I read in your book about uh, Vietnam that you keep repeating is that basically you kept wondering. Why are we there? Why are we in this country fighting in this, uh, in with issues of a people that were really none of your business? This was really going through your head a lot, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Well, I mean, I couldn't, 
I couldn't see any reason what we were accomplishing or what to have to do. All those people did, did was want to get their land back so they could farm it and get us off it. But uh, I did do, I, I mean, uh, my experience in Vietnam was uh, way, way, way different from what other grunts had. And the reason for that was when I, I went to, we went first to the division, then they assigned us down to brigade headquarters, and then we we're supposed to go on down from there to our respective battalions. But when I got off the, the plane that took us to the brigade headquarters, and we were over, uh, we were getting orientation from a captain, uh, about, you know, what was happening. I'm just, you know, kind of plug us in so we'd know what was going on. Uh, at the end of it, he said, there's anyone here, a college graduate who knows how to type? And I would raise my hand. I said, yeah, I do. And um, he took me in the S1 hooch and gave me a typing test. And I guess I passed it. Because he said, okay, you're going to be working for me for a while. And what had happened, they had a, a courts and board section that, you know, that handled spatial court marshals that had been so jammed up with backlog cases. I guess somebody, somebody from higher up must have been leaning them on them because that's, that's the only way they would have done something like this. But basically he said, we want you to, to, to work in this and get it sorted out. I didn't know a darn thing about it. But uh, they said, you know, get it, get it sorted out. And uh, I, I started working on it, and I'm dead. Uh, so, what, you know, I completed that without, I mean, they were happy. I think they realized that, you know, I could function in a non-Western society because, I, you know, it didn't bother me to go down in the little town village of Duck Toe there or anything like that. I just, uh, you know, with, with all that experience in, uh, in Somalia and also, you know, the Peace Corps put a lot of em emphasis on um, adjusting to what's called cultural shock. And of course, the GIs who were in Vietnam didn't have anything about culture shock. Right. You know, in their training, I mean, it's non-existent. And uh, I, I mean, being there and working there really didn't bother me. I could get them, you know, if they said do something, I could get things done. And uh, so they kind of liked my work and they just kept me there. I ended up as a spatial assistant to the adjutant that basically tackled any kind of problems where they ran into, you know, some kind of, uh, of uh, you know, something went wrong, which in war zones, lots of stuff goes wrong. And uh, they just basically, I just did different different tasks for him, whatever he wanted done. And that could be out, you know, out in the country. It could be at division headquarters. It could have been anywhere. Um, 
So mm. I, I, I really wasn't humping like, you know, the average G, grunt GI was. We got in lots of firefights and lots of, of, uh, you know, action as far as that went. But it was mainly virtually all a defensive, uh, of a defensive nature. Yes, and again, it's interesting why I wanted to bring back your attitude there because uh, in 68, you're in Vietnam saying, what the hell are we doing in this country? And I'm sure many soldiers who were also broken by the war were saying the same thing in Iraq, in Afghanistan. And if this year goes the way it is, many might be saying the same thing in Iraq and Iran. It's uh, sending these young people yeah. to these weird wars where, where we're trying to get in the business of other people and their ancient, uh, their ancient conflicts and their more, you know, more current conflicts. So it's almost like nothing changed. And you say you saw combat, but I think one scene that really affected me, and I'm sure obviously must have affected you, but you say you walked by a building and you looked in and you saw all these, uh, these Vietnamese poor people, like in small cages, oh, like animals. Yeah, that, that was one of the, I think that was one of the roughest things that, that I faced her. I, I, you know, I was a buck sergeant, so yeah, with buck sergeant, I decided the best rank to be in the military because you don't have any really extraneous responsibilities, but you also don't have anybody really breathing down your neck or anything either. But as a buck sergeant, and I, I saw this building. I hadn't. It must have just recently been up because I hadn't seen it on that little LZ we were on before. And I thought, and the door was open. And something told me to walk in there. I don't know why. It's kind of, kind of strange. Uh, but I walked in and that, I saw a sight there that I, I, well, first of all, I'll never forget it. I've never seen anything like it, but there were bamboo cages, kind of like you put a large dog in, you know, when you move a dog big dog from one location to another. Right, yeah. And uh, they, they, there were three or four cages altogether. Two of them had people in them. There were guys that they were totally naked. And they, because of the size of the cages, they really couldn't get out, out of much more than a fetal position. They couldn't, you couldn't stand up or stretch out or anything like that. The cages were so small. And it, it was almost heartrending. And I, one of the guys who was working there when I walked in, he said, you know, you probably ought to get out of here. I mean, and they said it in the context of, you really don't want to see this, uh. you know, which, in a way, I kind of wish I hadn't because I know I'll never forget it. Must have been horrible. And at the same time, you were again building that wall because you were seeing things that were very questionable, very hard to witness. You're in the middle of a war zone. There was nothing to, nobody to talk to or share your emotions. So you must have been, as I mentioned, creating this wall. And I'm sure you were drinking. Didn't you start doing pills during Vietnam, Duke? Yeah, pills and marijuana both. What, uh, what kind we, of pills? 
I'm not really sure. I think they, um, they S5 shop, which was kind of adjacent to S1 shop. Uh, it was a really little shop, but it, it usually didn't have anybody in it because those people worked in community development and they were never in there, but they had a big industrial kitchen sized jar of tills. They called them Darvons. And that was the old original Darvon that had a center in it that was narcotic. And I don't know what the narcotic was, but, uh, those pills were readily available. And of course, yeah, I soon found out that nobody was watching that big jar of pills standing there and you can get high from them. So you, when you go by this one shop, just hop in for a minute, grab a handful of those pills and, Walk out. And uh, marijuana is also something I started using using then, too, because uh, it was readily available. And uh, it seemed like, you know, at least half of the GIs were using it. Uh, mostly it in the le- It was time. illegal. That's a funny thing, right? You can get court martial. Oh yeah, it was totally <laughs> illegal. Yeah, I was. It was. You could get court martial for smoking it, but uh, I, I, I mean, we smoked it anyway, and uh, it was. It, it was kind of every. After a while, it, it turned out to be just about every evening we smoked marijuana. Uh, there was an interesting, uh, concept there that, <laughs> the, a lot of GIs thought that you couldn't mix beer and marijuana because they'd kill the effects of each other. And that mm. kind of held on for a long time. So you'd see guys, they'd be, either be drinking or they'd be smoking marijuana. So. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I mean, I mixed them myself. <laughs> well, as somebody who's done both plenty of marijuana and beer together, I know they they work fine hand in hand. Uh, and it's interesting, Duke, because I had my counselor in the late '90s when I was in rehab in Houston. He was a Vietnam vet, and he basically told, of course, told us a story. He really didn't drink or drug but he went to vietnam and he discovered heroin there it was wonderful according to him he became an addict and when he came to the united states he said what he hated was that the heroin really was dreadful here in the united states compared what you can get in asia was there heroin where you were or vets doing it while you were there there was some but around my lz it was not too common and i I heard that mainly that went on in the bigger cities like Saigon and Da Nang and and some of those other areas like that. I don't I never encountered heroin at Duck Foe, at Elsie Bronco. And 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 none of the other places that I traveled to too. Uh, I never just never Never had occasion to to see it or or come in contact with it. Hmm, I will say one thing about the marijuana, though. Uh, I, I suspect that 
it had the same uh, perception as a heroin did because marijuana was and and Vietnam was really great, and the stuff we got stateside when I came back, I mean it was pitiful. That's only word word for it. <laughs> yeah, similar to my counselor, just they had the good stuff back there in Asia, real stuff, uncut, yeah. all that stuff, well grown well-tended and so forth. And before you left uh, Vietnam, you were almost getting ready to leave, and you write, you had probably the worst time right before you left. A rocket almost killed you, right? Yeah, that well, that was, yeah, that was just about two days before I left. It just, it, it hit one end of the hooch, and I was in the other end of the hooch, and it knocked me to the floor, and and uh, the end had been hit, got caught on fire. Uh, I was so short that I wasn't even working, and I was getting really getting my gear ready to go. Yeah, go back to the states. Yeah, and it's horrible because you write that basically servants that worked at the base would relay information to the Viet Cong of what was going on in your base, and then they could just uh, conduct terrorist attacks on you guys. Right. So, I mean, it was, it was kind of a catch-22. You know, the, the, the Army didn't want the... You know, the, the Army wanted to, didn't want the GIs to feel like they were dragged down with mundane stuff. But at the same time as they brought the Vietnamese in, they brought in a whole retinue of spies to relay information back. So it was kind of self-defeating. Indeed, indeed. And uh, so you came back to the United States after the Vietnam War. Uh, what did you do next? I mean, could you say, as you write, there was no really psychological issue as PTSD back then? Uh, it's something more that they've discovered in modern times. Did Were you affected by PTSD, or what was your life like once you got back from Vietnam, Duke? I, looking back on it, I, I think... I was uh, I, I was losing my mind, to be honest. Uh, especially with the moral issues. Yeah, I, was, uh, um, I mean, I don't really think that the violence of you know the firefights and that kind of thing had the long lasting as long lasting impact as the emotional and psychological. Uh, challenges did. I know towards the end of my my time there, um, I was I was well. The, the our, my sergeant called me in one time and said, "Duke, there's some people want to talk to you." And um, I said, "Okay." And so we went outside and, and talked, and uh, these people were. I think recruiting mercenaries, and we talked for a long time. They were very vague about what they were talking about and so on. But um, I, they wanted to know if I'd be interested in working with them. And I said, "Well, you know, I'm not sure." And they said, "Well, think about. It. We'll come back again." And they came back again another week or so. 
I actually had a different person with him this time. And he kind of seemed like the boss. And uh, they were actively recruiting. They wanted me to go and work for them even before I left and came back, you know, to the States. They wanted me to go directly from Vietnam to work for them. And uh, I'm not, I don't know exactly what they were. They were not official U.S. military, even though they wore fatigues and they were introduced to me by the staff sergeant. But they had obviously had somebody higher up somewhere who they had been involved with who thought I would be a good candidate for the extra legal stuff that they needed to 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 have done. And uh, I I seriously I was so my mind was so warped about that time. I actually gave serious consideration while I was still in Vietnam to taking them up on their offer. And uh, and they really wanted me to. They they said point blank, we'd like you to you know, agree to come with us right now. You know, just when my since my tour is over. And uh, I don't I, I don't know. I got I came back to the states, and I don't know if it was pent up anger or emotions or what, but I became radically and adamantly anti-war. And uh, these people, they actually had, they'd asked me before I left Vietnam, I said, well, can we contact you then when you get back home? And I'd give them my parents' telephone number. And uh, they called me. One guy called me. And he was all enthusiastic about me accepting their offer. I guess he thought I was going to. But I'd become so so radicalized in that short few weeks of time that I told him in no uncertain terms that we had nothing in common and I wasn't going to work for him. That's when the threats started. He, he, he threatened me that, you know, first of all, he told me I was not to share what had happened with anybody. And he made threats against me, and I guess he kind of thought as an afterthought um, as he was raving on at me that he made threats against my parents. We said that he said we know where they are, and they won't be safe either. I mean, oh it was, my God. Uh, I had I stuffed that in in the back of my mind. And it it, ne- it never came out till a couple of years ago. You mean you just remembered it, or you had to deal with it? Because I think you write in your book this anger no. just flowed out of you. Yeah, I did. The anger did, and uh, resentment, and uh, no about about this about this these mercenaries making their offer and and, and threatening my parents. That part of it. I remember them threatening me, and I really didn't tell anybody because at the time I thought, you know, they're going to, they will come looking for me. I think that's a paranoia, kind of paranoia that existed in the United States at that time. I actually thought they would 
come looking for me. So I never really told anybody much about that. I think I did. After I got married, I told my wife, I think. But I never did tell anybody about them, the threats against my parents. I just, I, and because I, I didn't remember them until it was really strange. I was working with a, a young man on, on taking the 12 steps and we were talking about powerlessness and, and how tough we used to think we were and so on. And that evening I went, I went out to dinner. I was coming back from a restaurant and man, it's, it's like it just exploded out of me. I remember that and an explosion of anger that, I mean, I don't, you know, since I've come in recovery and taken the 12 steps, I really don't get angry. I mean, I just, it's not worth my time, you know, but I, I, golly, but it's dealing with some of those things. I mean, there was no, when I can't, I should have been, I should have been sent to some kind of PTSD treatment at the VA, but at that time, you know, nobody, nobody thought about anything like that. Just, I mean, the attitude of everybody was suck it up, you know, deal with it. Yes, and that's why we had hundreds of thousands of uh, broken souls after, well, the Vietnam War and really any war as we've seen over and over again. Yes, as you write, you did join Veterans Against the War. You were active. You seem to, in a way, gotten your life together. You became an academic. You, uh, you were, yeah, you were functioning, right? Well, I was living a dual life before <laughs> yeah, I was doing yeah. The Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde uh, thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much so. And it just like I, you know, I, I, I blame myself. I think, and I, and I, I had developed such low self-esteem after that, and just, you know, it, it was, and shame that went with it. That I had on the one side. But I could hide in the ivory tower, and I did. Because people in the ivory tower were way more accepting than your average people were of Vietnam veterans. I mean, I, the attitude of Vietnam vets, especially after the My Lai Massacre, I mean, it, it, the general public is just, I mean, it was just contempt, I think, as much as anything. For the, for the veterans who did come back. And that's when we most needed the help and, and the understanding. But we weren't getting it. And the, and the result was that I, I did. I just became a, I became two people. Who were these two people? I don't know people. any other way Yeah, who were these two people? Well, one was the Ivory. One, yeah, the one was the, the low life who hated himself. And the other was the average higher academic who, who actually shown an academic in the academy and, and did super well. But it was two people. And the drunk one at nighttime, after the day was over with and the sun went down, the negative, shameful, addicted human being came out.
Yeah, I agree. I also lived a dual life. It was a, a lot of self-loathing for living a lie and continue living a lie and drinking and drugging even more. I like how at the beginning of your book, Duke, you write, the best place to hide addiction is in the military and in the ivory tower. So you had it all, right? You had the two places yep. where you could hide your demons. <laughs> yep. Sure was. And I did for years. And you were basically, I believe you were an everyday drinker. You had pauses. Uh, again, I know the drill because I went through the same thing. I was not just alcohol, obviously. With me, it was uh, became cocaine, pills, marijuana as my addiction got worse and worse with a few stints of sobriety here and there. And uh, what were some of the after effects from your PTSD that you had? I think you would talk... Uh, I believe fireworks might trigger you. You had night terrors. What were some of the effects or side effects you had? Well, I dealt with the side effects mostly by when I came back. I, I was back about three weeks. I, the Census Bureau that I mentioned I'd worked for briefly before I went in the military uh, had said when I finished my military obligation, give them a call back. Well, they gave me a job in Washington. And I no sooner started that job than it, it, I made an almost conscious decision to drink every night because I couldn't stand nighttime. Daytime was okay. If I, as long as I stayed working and, you know, I was kind of a workaholic, I was okay. I didn't drink or drug. Nighttime came, it was totally different. It's like once the sun went down, that I don't know. I, it was it, it, it's strange, and unless you've been in a, a unless you've been in an active combat zone, I don't think people understand the difference between day and night. And a combat zone is just so different, and you know, it's supposed to be evening and night is supposed to be relaxation time and rest time for people. And, uh, you know, when, when you have that experience in war, an actual active combat, it's like, it's a, when you, when you get out of it, it's still a different world. It's the world of, of the night with the, you know, Claude Thomas, who I quote in there in the book, identified it pretty well. You know, it's just, it's like, yeah, the, the, the battles are still going on, and uh, the light, the, the light in the battle scene, and you know, at nighttime, it's so different from anything. And I, I actually went on a sixteen-year drunk, where I was drunk every day for sixteen years. I never missed an evening. Daytime was fine. I could work and did work and 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 had a, a really good uh life as far as you know working and and accomplishing things and doing what you're supposed to do. But man when nighttime came it all changed. And I started drinking like usually like about nine o'clock or something and I'd drink myself till I was passed out. Because I couldn't stand it. 
Duke, uh, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on AM Bytenostic Radio and discussing your very inspirational, touching, and educational book, uh, Appalachian Free Spirit. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. And the more we can reach out to others who are self-suffering, the better we are. Amen, and thank you. And there you have it, my beloved True Seekers. The first part of our interview with Duke Talbot. Let's get into his recovery now. First, though, Duke talks about hitting the proverbial rock bottom. Then, indeed, Duke fully relates his road to recovery after so many years of continual drunkenness and misery. It's quite a tale. Duke will share about his issue of codependency as well. Through all of this, he'll relate how he drew from Zen Buddhism, the Gospel of Thomas, and other heterodox traditions to help him become sober and alive and what he had to do in general to overcome PTSD, which affects so many people in this time of perpetual war and perpetual mind control. As mentioned in the intro, I'll include the interview we did last year with David Schoen, entitled Jung Addiction and Archetypal Evil, from his penetrating book, The War of the Gods and Addiction. So please become an AB Prime member or patron at Patreon for the full dope. Pardon my pun. Damning your soul has never been this cheap, but you'll get your spirit back. And perhaps start your journey of recovery. As always, if you want the entire show on the house, just let me know. No issue at all, and I do it all the time. Regardless, Please ask and get help. You are a one-time event in this cosmos, a unique miracle, and the Archons don't like that. We are all amazing and can do so many wonders. Let's continue. Let's fight the good fight, keep the faith, and finish the race that is finally meeting our authentic self. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, even if briefly. Hello and goodbye, as always. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.